Well, good morning. If you have a Bible and you want to join us, we're going to be in Acts and we're going to be jumping all over chapter 6 and chapter 7. We've been studying for the last few weeks this whole historical document about the beginning of the church in Acts. And we've been studying it through the lens of renewal and mission. And what we've been talking about is that when we experience the Holy Spirit, we experience the Lord in our lives, it brings renewal. And as Christians, we get a little backed up sometimes, you know? You know what I'm talking about? Y'all here with me this morning? All right. And when, when that renewal doesn't work itself out <laughs> into mission, Sometimes we get cynical. Sometimes we start saying things like, church doesn't work for me anymore. Sometimes we start saying things like, I don't know where God is. Because we were never made to be a reservoir. We are a river. And what flows into us has to flow out of us for that mission to then start bringing back more renewal. In fact, some of you feel stuck in your faith. And you're like, well, how do I get unstuck in my faith? Some of you need to go on mission. And we can talk about that another time. Because even going on mission sometimes brings renewal when my hands start getting dirty in the work of God, okay? And so today we are in a section of scripture. Um, it's it's kind of heartbreaking because what has happened is the Holy Spirit has brought about this huge revival. It's the very first revival that we have recorded in history. The church explodes. Some say there may be 20 or 30,000 people came to faith at this festival called Pentecost just outrageous work of the Holy Spirit, unprecedented. And it took just about 30 days for persecution to break out. And what we're about to read is the very first case of violent persecution against the church. We're about to read about the, uh, the, very, la or the very first martyr of the church. And this is kind of hard, so I'm going to need your help today. Because what we're about to read is a historical event of the life of Stephen and the death of Stephen. And so it's really easy for us to read, <clears throat> read stuff that's historical and make an immediate application, we should be like Stephen. That's not what the scripture is saying. It's giving a historical uh, rendition of what happened, but it's not telling us what we should draw from it. So what I'm going to preach on is hopefully draw some truths out of it, but you got to go with me because we have to look for application in our own hearts. You ready? Y'all don't seem ready. Does everybody want to be at the beach right now? Yes. Okay. Close your eyes and think sandy thoughts. Sandy thoughts. Sandy thoughts. Sandy thoughts. Christine, come and read for us. All right. Yes. Could you read it like in a sea breezy kind of way? I mean, I'm just asking. No? Okay. Now, here's what she's going to do. She's going to read. Uh, Christine, when you jump to other sections, can you let us know where you're jumping to? Because uh, right in the middle of this big passage of Scripture, the entire chapter, almost of seven, is the sermon that Stephen preached before the religious leaders of his time. We're not going to read that sermon. You can go and read that another time. But basically what he's saying in his sermon is everything in the Old Testament is pointing to the coming of Jesus. Jesus fulfilled everything in the Old Testament. And the one that you're looking for has already come, and you crucified him. Yeah, that ticked him off a little bit. All right, and... But so we're going to read around it to give us context. So, chapter 6, verse, where are you at? Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 7. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. 
Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the providences of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses and testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. Okay, she just jumped to verse 54, no, no, if you're following along. Sorry, Christine. Keep we jumped going. to verse 54. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this, this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The word of the Lord. Lord, um, we pray now that um, you would send your Holy Spirit to bring revelation to our hearts for better understanding of you and ourselves. We also pray, Father, that you would give us courage um, to, uh, to face the revelations that you give us. Uh, in places where we need to repent, in places where you're asking us to follow. And we pray, Father, for strength that as we leave here, we would be those on mission, uh, following our Jesus wherever you lead us to go. So, Father, we pray for revelation, for courage and strength. In Christ's name, amen. So here's this amazing passage. If you go back to last week, <clears throat> there were seven men that were appointed to feed the widows to make sure the distribution of food was fair. Stephen was one of those. And Stephen, a man full of grace and power, begins to do wondrous things. We're not told what those wondrous things are. We're just told that those wondrous things are flowing out of grace and power. And he caught the attention of the religious leaders of the day. 
They get a little ticked off with him. They bring him in. He outwordsmiths them. He just puts them to shame. So they get some false testimony against him, bring him on trial. Uh, he preaches this long sermon. They scream blasphemy. They pick up rocks and they kill him. So as I was reading this passage, I got to tell you, first of all, I got to verse 55 and I'm like, there goes my week. Because Jesus and I fought over this passage like all week. I mean, it's like, like serious, we got to talk about this. In verse 55, it says, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, first of all, every reference to Jesus at the right hand of God, he's always sitting. This is the only place in all of Scripture that we see that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. It's almost as if Jesus has risen from his throne and now is watching Stephen being stoned. And my question is, why? Like, you're on the throne. You're Jesus. You're at the right hand of the Father. Why not step in and stop this? Why not just do your Jesus thing, make them all blind or something, or give them all, like, pitcher's elbow to where they can't throw a rock? Like, do something to stop it. In fact, it led to this question that I had was, Jesus, I don't understand how you could sit and watch that. And what I don't also understand, and this is from my own personal experience, why do you let people I love die when I don't want them to die? And here was a story that the Lord did with me as I went round and round and round. He said to me, Randy, you're too old. You're too old. You've got to give up your childish faith. And let me tell you what that means and how the Lord was kind to me. The Lord is like, you know, childish faith is that kind of faith that you believe in tooth fairies, you know, where you believe in fantasy things. Childish faith is kind of that faith that's developed. With me, it was Miss Carpenter in Sunday school class. And she was this gentle old lady in Sunday school class when I was just a little kid. And she had a felt board and she could stick like things on the felt board. Have you ever seen that? Some of you have been spared that kind of Sunday school. And so she would tell us Bible stories. And here's the crazy thing, that in a childish faith, everything's black and white, everything is simple, everything can put, be put on a, like a felt board, and a story could be told about it. But I'll tell you what, Miss Carpenter, she never talked about doubts, ever, ever in any of our Sunday school classes. She never talked about adultery, she never talked about murder, she never talked about incest. <clears throat> Could you imagine Ms. Carpenter talking about incest? She never talked about suicide. She never talked about depression. She never talked about the complexities of sexuality in a changing world. She never talked about that. She never talked about the roles of women and men in the church and how some people agree and some people don't. She never talked about politics. She never put that stuff up on the felt board. She didn't. And yet every bit of that's in the Bible. Every bit of it. And so the Lord was saying to me, you got to give up your childish faith. And a childish faith is actually believing that there are clear right and wrong. There's clear black and white. There's clear absolutes in everything we experience in life. And I'm telling you, that's a child that thinks that way. But when you grow up, you realize everything's messy. You start growing up and you realize that life is hard and it's complicated our lives don't always make sense. See, when I was young and I was faced with questions that I didn't have answers for, I would walk away from my faith. I'd say, there's another example. God can't be trusted. <clears throat> we don't have a clear answer about that. 
But then I started to realize that's true about everything in my life. Every relationship I have has questions that don't have answers to them. Everything I do in my life has questions and messiness to it. So the Lord challenged me this week in my prayer, give up childish faith for childlike faith. Remember, a childlike faith puts your trust in a father and his love for you in the middle of the mess. So when we come to these complicated, often troubling passages, it's not like we commit intellectual suicide and say we can never wrestle with them. Yes, we should wrestle with them. But we come with, with this childlike faith that puts our faith in a father that doesn't explain everything, but gives us everything. So, why did Jesus stand and watch uh, Stephen get stoned? I don't know. If you know, please come and tell me, but I doubt you do know, but we can debate it. I don't know. But what I do know is look at verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of grace, God's grace, and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen was a man that was full of grace. grace. Come on, and let's say it again. How long had Stephen been a Christian? (laughs) Come on now, get with me. He's a a newbie. He's a brand new Christian, and he was full of grace. If you know Jesus... If you know Jesus, you are full of God's grace. Period. Stephen was full of God's grace and power. If you know Jesus, then you are full of God's grace and power. In fact, if you know Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And he has given you everything, not some of the things. He's given you everything you need for life and God's. And he's given them to you out of the abundance of his wealth, his riches. That doesn't mean that he gave us, like, because he's rich, he gave us a little stuff thing. Scripture says, no, according to his abundance, he is given to you. Meaning, do you understand the vastness of his wealth? And it's the vastness that defines the very gift that he's given you, which is endless. So we have heaped i think it's in john verse what is it first john no no it's john chapter 1 verse 15 where it says that he has poured grace upon grace onto us and what that means is we have been given great grace and great power and if you have jesus and you have the holy spirit those two things are true about you and here's what's crazy it is possible to have grace, and it's also possible to have great power and never use them. I'm telling you, I see it all the time, where God, we all shake our head, we've got great grace and great power, great grace and great power. It's like God has put this banquet out in front of us, and we sit at the banquet table going, I'm so starving, I'm so hungry, and the Lord's going, grace and power. I just wish I had power and grace. Grace and power. Just open your eyes and eat. Eat, feast on what has been laid out before you. It is yours. Eat it. But many of us are like Nelson Mandela, you know, when we go on those hunger strikes. I will not eat. Even though food is coming, I will not eat. And we starve ourselves, even in our faith, even though everything that we need has been given to us. And what is grace and power? We call it the gospel here. 
And gospel means good news. Here's the good news. That grace is the unmerited one-way love of Jesus. I did nothing to earn it. I did nothing to deserve it. That Jesus, in his perfect life, his death on the cross, and the power of his resurrection, has poured God's love, his grace, and his power on you. Not anything you did, he did it all. Here's the great thing about grace. Grace has the power to meet you wherever you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you're doing in your mind right now. I don't care what you plan on doing. When grace lands in our life, there is nothing greater than grace. Even scripture says that where sin increases, grace increases even more. And grace means that I am forgiven. If I have put my faith in Christ, then I have been forgiven of all my past sins. I don't care what you've done. All your present sins, who you're hating right now. Like, what time's the Titans game start? Or all your future sins. They're all forgiven. And you're like, how can that be? I know. That's what Jesus did. He took them all to the cross. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. That is the gospel of grace. That is a great grace. And that grace, is, it's crazy because that grace isn't just a grace that meets us and cuddles us in the mud pile of our own making and just says, aren't you wonderful and fearfully made? The grace also cleans us up. It meets us where we are, but it never leaves us where we are because it's preparing us to do something that's outrageous, and that is the leak. What I mean is when Jesus pours his grace and power in me and it's abundant according to his riches, try to contain it. You can't. You leak it. It leaks everywhere. And that's the amazing thing about grace is that when I am loved, what leaks out of me is love. And when I'm not loving like I know I should be leaking out of love, it causes me to repent and feel sorrow because I'm not living who I truly am. When I've been forgiven, it leaks out of me in forgiveness of other people. It's amazing how beautiful other people suddenly become when I am smothered in grace. Unbelievable. And when that grace pours in on me and I realize, oh, my father's with me. He's giving me everything I need. What I don't have, <clears throat> I don't need. Then I become radically generous just leaks out of me when I know that he will never leave me you want to talk about courage Woo! wow when you know he is with me he is for me there is nothing that can touch me that doesn't have to go through his hands first he knows my number of my days he knows when they're going to come to an end there ain't no fear now let's go people say it's irresponsible well maybe in this world but whenever you're going to live in grace and power, here's what we learned from the text, and we learned from all of Scripture, you're going to face opposition, serious opposition. In John chapter 15, these are the words of Jesus. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. It's Jesus. Who hates Jesus? The world. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Grace has rescued me from this world and has brought me into a new kingdom, a new family. That is why the world hates you, because you're not a part of the world anymore. Remember what I told you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And this is why I tell you about Christians in China and Africa. I tell you exotic stories, you know, behind the, you know, the Russian curtain. Like I tell you, no, no, we're not in a bubble here where that doesn't apply to us. That absolutely does apply to us. It's just more sinister here. 
because the enemy may rest in you. Ooh, what does that mean? Well, go to the text. Look at what happened. Timoth- or Stephen was confronted <clears throat> by all these Jewish leaders. They were the freedmen, which you can go study who they are. They were a, a, a group of Jews that had been in slavery, and then they, were, they escaped slavery, and then they became a part of the temple priest called the freedmen because they're free. But then there were Jews from Serene. There was Jews from Alexandria. There were Jews from Cilicia. There were Jews from Asia. All these different Jewish groups, all their leaders came together. And even though they normally don't get along, suddenly they're all best friends when they have a common enemy named Stephen. What was going on was the, the religious leaders of the day had positioned themselves against the work of great grace and great power. One side you have religion, the other side you have great grace and power. Isn't that odd? That religion, all throughout Scripture, kind of positions itself against the work of Christ. What's going on here? Well, Martin Luther said it. He says, the sinners were prone to pursue a relationship with God in one of two ways. The first is religion. The second is the gospel. And the two are absolutely opposed to one another. In fact, they're they're going in exactly the opposite direction. Now, this seems simple, but hang with me. Because the greatest threat to you living in great grace and great Maybe Midtown. Ooh. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> what are you talking about? Religion, let me define what religion is. Religion is my effort, my effort to get to God. This is my effort. And... <clears throat> So there are a lot of things that play a role in my effort to get close to God. Because who doesn't want to be close to God? I mean, there's a lot of things that I do in this religion of what am I going to do. One is pray. I should pray more. Have you ever thought that? I should pray more. I should be a better prayer. Is there anybody in this room that says, no, 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 I got that. I checked that box. I pray more than anybody on the planet. No, we all feel shame when it comes to prayer. And that's a trick of religion is that it's never enough. It's never enough. A lot of preachers use that to manipulate and control people. Shouldn't you pray more? Yes, I should pray more. Gotcha. But then you may come to church so that you feel like somehow or another, if I come and do my religious duty and show up to church and make my wife happy or my husband happy, then God's going to see that and God's going to go, hmm, super duper. Or if I want to really be crazy, I'll go to the men's retreat in a couple of weeks. Whew. What a sacrifice that would be for God. Then he'll love me. Or here's what's crazy. I'm going to give to the poor. If I give to the poor, look look how much God's going to see that. And when God sees that I give to the poor, and you know what? I won't even tell anybody I've given to the poor. But he knows. And when he sees it, oh, then, then... Or maybe I'll go to small group. I hate small group. I'm going to go to small group. I hate small group. I'm going to go to small group. I hate small group. But God, you see what I'm doing. I'm doing what I hate for you. 
make me successful. <laughs> Here was one of the first things religion taught me when I became a Christian. Man, I really got to quit cussing. Uh, like seriously, cussing. That was my vow the first year I was a believer. I'm not going to cuss anymore. I'm not gonna, damn it, I'm not going to cuss anymore. <laughs> I just, horrible. Like, and I tried hard. And every time I tried hard, I failed even more. Or what about, <laughs> I'm going to practice kindness or something. Religion is everything I tried to do to get God's attention, his affection, his favor, or at least don't be against me. That's religion. And in the day that we live in, it's not just this, this building with that stained glass window for us to start thinking that this building is the church. This building's not the church. This building is just, it's just bricks. We're the church. But in the culture that we live in, they go, well, I don't go to church. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a religious person. I'm a spiritual person. I'm, I'm just spiritual. It's the same thing. Like some people might say, you know, man, I, my spiritual life, I practice it in the quietness of my morning. I've got the five, five, five. You know what the five, five, five is? Five minutes of meditation, five minutes of stretching, you know, and then five minutes of mentally preparing myself for my boss. Five, five, five. <laughs> or this, my spirituality allows me to be the best version of me. Really? How's that? Well, first thing I'm going to learn to love myself. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to splurge at Starbucks on myself. You know, I'm going to love me. And then I'm going to be the, the best me that I can possibly be. And the way that I'm going to do that, I'm going to learn to forgive. I'm not going to hold a grudge anymore. I'm going to learn how to forgive. I'm going to learn to be patient. It's hard, but I want to be the kind of person that's a patient person. So I'm going to learn to be patient. And I'm, you know what? I, I want to be an honest person. I always want to be honest. So I'm going to, I'm going to practice authentic, raw honesty. And I'm going to listen to my instincts. I'm going to listen to my instincts. And I'm going, to, I'm going to eat clean. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start eating clean, whatever that means. I don't know, veggies. But I'm going to eat clean. And then I'm going to slow down and I'm going to savor the little things in life. You see, religion is all about what I'm doing. Spirituality is the same thing. Me, 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 me. Am I saying you shouldn't love yourself? No, no, no. That's, come hear another sermon. I'm just saying that when my loving of myself starts and ends with me, it's the same as religion. See, religion isn't about surrender. It's about control. Let me try to explain to you. Let me say a couple of statements to maybe help you. Religion says that if we obey God, he will love us. If I do it right, God's going to love me. You know what the gospel says? God loves me and I had nothing to do with it and that's why I obey. See, one is I'm going out empty-handed looking for love. The other is my buckets are full, and I'm going to live out of the love that's been given to me. The difference between religion and gospel. Religion says that you should trust in what you do as a good, moral person. The gospel says you're not good or moral. You needed to be rescued from yourself. The only one that's good and moral is Jesus, and Jesus brings his goodness into our life free of charge and lets it explode in our lives. See, the goal of religion is to get from God such things as health, wealth, insight, power, and control. The goal of the gospel is not the gifts of God. The goal of the gospel is God himself. We want him. Now, with him comes all the benefits of God. But my affection is for the one that loves me. In fact, when life gets hard, it really determines. And 
Let me just say this. We bounce back and forth a lot. Are you with me? This is not a black and white kind of thing. Let me tell you, religion, every time I step up here to preach a sermon, I'm very religious. How am I going to do? I swear my ego knows no bounds, <laughs> all right? And the gospel is Jesus saying, it, you, you really don't matter that much to what's about to happen. My Holy Spirit's going to do something. Just don't get in the way, all right? So when I hit hard times, really struggling, like suffering, religion says hardship in life is punishment from God because I didn't get some things right. I didn't go to church enough. I didn't pray enough. I didn't go to small group enough. That I didn't give enough. Like our religion says that when you hit hardships, it's God's way of displaying his displeasure. The gospel sees hardship in life as a sanctifying affliction that reminds us of Jesus' suffering and his passion for us to grow into his love. That's why in religion, I can never rejoice in suffering. It's something to endure and get through. In the gospel, because I am loved and my suffering is in the hands of the Father who cares about me and is using it now to make me beautiful, even in my suffering, I can rejoice. I can keep going on. Religion says I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion's motivation is based on fear and insecurity. Gospel's motivation is based on gratitude, joy, and love. Religion, when I'm criticized, I'm furious or devastated because it's critical that I think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. The gospel, when I'm criticized, I struggle, but it's not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. You don't think that's freeing? Religion mutates prayer because it makes my prayer life consist largely of petitions, and it only heats up when I'm in a time of need. My main purpose in prayer is to is control of the environment in which I live in. Gospel, my prayer life consists of generously, generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship with God. It's scandalous, I'm telling you. I, personally, I prefer religion over the gospel. I have a lot more control over here. You know, over here, I, I, I can kind of deal with me. Over here, it's just a mindless tsunami of God's love on me. And if you don't believe me, Jesus told a story in Matthew chapter 20 of this guy who uh, owned a farm, and it was time for harvest, and he went into the workplace early in the morning, he found a bunch of people there, and he goes, hey, if you'll come work on my farm, I'll pay you a day's wage. And they're like, fantastic, that's why we're here, let's go. And they went to the work party. And then he came back two hours later and he said, there's more people here. He says, hey, if you want to go work on my farm, plenty of harvest. Come on, I'll pay you. And they said, fantastic, let's go. And he went back midday, got more people. Then he got back, went back at 3 in the afternoon. He got more people. Then he went back at 4.30 in the afternoon. The workday's over at 5. And he says, what are you still doing here? Get out there. And they show up only to pick up a hoe and then put it down because the bell rung. Oh, Wow. And so the farm owner said, hey, line up the guys. We're going to pay them. And let's start with the folks that we hired last. 
And the last one, you know, they hadn't even worked up a sweat. They just showed up, you know, not even a thirst. And they go up to the paymaster and he gives them a full day's wage. And they're like, what? We didn't earn this. We didn't deserve this. We didn't do anything to get what you're paying us right now. People in the back of the line are like, oh, this is going to be awesome. Because when we get up there, we worked all day long. When we get up there, the payday is going to be unbelievable. And they get up there and all they got was a day's pay. And they were furious. They were like, we're going to fight. It's time to fight now. Why? Because I understood and I understand what it means to get what I earned. Even if what I earned is punishment. I get that. What I don't get is God's outrageous grace. And trust me, when we get to heaven, you're going to be shocked at who you see up there. Because if you get there, you'll probably see yourself there. And that should shock you enough. <laughs> so let me wrap up. This is our time's up. Is Stephen our hero? Well, he is a hero. He's a hero of the faith, no doubt. I mean, what a man full of grace and power. Is this where I say, be like Stephen? Oh, religion. This is where I say, you are Stephen. Oh, what do you mean? Do you understand? Yes, Stephen was a man full of grace and power. But so are you. So are you. Do you know that in Galatians chapter 5, it says the fruit of the Spirit. If you have Jesus, you have the Spirit. All right? And fruit means that where the Spirit is, he brings his fruit. Just like you. Where you go, you bring you. Right? And when you show up, you bring the fruit of you. And we all know what your fruit is. <laughs> Trust me. When you show up, you bring yourself. And when yourself is there, you bring certain things with yourself. When the Holy Spirit shows up, he brings stuff that's the Holy Spirit. You can't deny it. In fact, the only way to deal with this kind of stuff that the Holy Spirit, we're about to read, the only way to deal with it is to deny it, suffocate it, and ignore it. That's the only thing you can do with it. Because you can't stop it. And what it says is the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. What's the rest of it? Forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Is there a song to this? You know? Gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. We have. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. What it's saying is, come on up to the buffet and start eating. And how do we do that? Well, here's the last thing I'm just going to say. Have you ever helped a kid walk? You know, like a 10-month-old, you know? Those little boogers, they can't walk, you know? They're just waddling. Their legs aren't very strong. And so you hold their hands, you know, just at that moment when you think you got this one and the cameras are rolling, you know, and you let go. What do they do? They fall down because they can't walk. Like... <clears throat> And what do you do? You don't go, I'm done. I'm done. Put him back in the crib. He's never going to walk. That's it. We got one that doesn't walk. He's just never going to walk. And when he's 30, he's just going to be laying in the crib because nobody ever taught him how to walk. You don't do that. What do you do? You take him up, you pick him up, and you say, okay, let's go again. And here's what you know that if you don't start putting some stuff on the, on the hard corners of that coffee table and stuff, this little kid's going to have some scars. Why? Because once you start this process of getting up and going down, they ain't going to stop. In fact, he or she is going to learn that when they fall down, they can actually get back up. And then they're going to learn that they can get up without your help. And then what are they going to do? They're going to start walking. They're going to start walking. That's the Holy Spirit. Midtown. Would you dare to stand up 
And if you don't believe I'm telling the truth, at the end of this story, remember that guy Saul that they laid all the garments at his feet? Do you know who that guy became? The Apostle Paul, the man who wrote most of the Bible, most of the New Testament. Listen to what he says about his life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. From the least of the apostles. This is Paul. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. He fully owns what he was. But listen to what he says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Oh, no. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God. Not I, but the grace of God that is with me. That's Paul. Grace saved me. Grace changed me. Grace empowered me. And then grace made me an agent of change on mission. All right. I'm done, but you're not. Because if, if you didn't come to church and you are the church, maybe Jesus has got some business for you. Maybe he needs to pick you up, let you take some steps, start learning what it means to listen to the Holy Spirit. If you don't know how to listen to the Holy Spirit, just read this. If you want to hear God speak to you, just read the word. Or one of my mentors would say to me, if you want to hear God audibly speak to you, just read this out loud. <laughs> I mean, it starts there. I dare you to go and read some of this and then be still and say, Lord, what do you have for me? And not experience the Holy Spirit. He loves to do that with his kids because we are full of grace and power. But guys, when he brings that renewal, hang on because the engines are revving, because he doesn't change us just to sit still. He changes us to go on mission, because even in the mission, he brings more renewal. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this time of worship now, we sing some songs. Would you speak to us, Holy Spirit? In this moment right now, I have to believe, Father, there's a reason you have your kids here today, to rescue them from religion, into the outrageous, offensive gospel of free grace. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts right now. What, for what purpose did you have me here today? What is it that you're telling me? Where are you challenging me to go? What are you asking me to put down? What are you asking me to pick up? Lord, what are those convictions that you gave some of us years ago, but we buried them? Hoping they would never rise up again, but this morning they have come alive. A fresh call, a renewed sense of who we are, a renewed sense of who you are. Because we are what we are. Not us, but your grace that is within us. Speak now as we worship your holy, holy name. Amen.